Welcome to the Murthy teleconference on the H-1B corporate employer-employee memo. This special teleconference for today is exclusively for our valued company slash corporate clients whom we are so delighted and honored to work with. Uh, it is another free and wonderful service of the Murthy Law Firm. I have with me on my panel today two of our amazing attorneys from the H-1B department at the Murthy Law Firm, Korzad Mehta and Alyssa Klein. We are going to go through a bunch of different issues, analyzing the memo, and trying really to figure out uh, how we can try to overcome some of the roadblocks that the memo seems to have created, particularly for consulting companies. As always, our teleconference series are confidential and copyrighted material of the Murthy Law Firm, so we would really appreciate your not duplicating or recording today's teleconference in any manner whatsoever without the prior written permission of the Murthy Law Firm. Um, the, this teleconference does contain a lot more details than we will be sharing in our general corporate teleconference, uh, which we do on the first Wednesday of each month for the general corporate uh, corporations or corporate clients. Um, because we believe that uh, those who uh, work directly with us and take care of us and help us pay our bills and provide us uh, the necessary support should be given a little extra special value and treatment. So what is this memo? I'm sure most of you have heard about this very recent memo that was released on January the 8th, that was dated actually January the 8th, 2010, but was released the following week, uh, referred to sometimes as the Newfeld January 8th, 2010 memo, which provides guidance to the USCIS um, specifically addressing issues uh, on the employer-employee relationships and how one can determine whether there is a valid bona fide employer-employee relationship. Just so you understand, um, if there is no U.S. employer involved, obviously then the employer cannot sponsor the H-1 petition. And so the analysis and the determination of when an employer can fit the definition of an employer will become critical in obtaining H-1B approvals. According to the Immigration and Nationality Act, the petitioner obviously has to be a U.S. employer. Um, the whole controversy that this memo raises uh, is which definition of the U.S. employer is appropriate in the H-1B context. In this memo, the USCIS... Uh, refers to having adopted the definition based on common law, which is really British common law from like 200, 300, several hundreds of years ago, and case law, um, rather than specific statutes that may that we believe may be better suited with the analysis of the employer-employee. Until they are challenged, until the USCIS is challenged uh, in some kind of a court case, uh, and maybe we need some of you to volunteer as companies and, and give in to, to possibly challenge this interpretation. We, in today's teleconference, want to focus on how we can try to address the issues in today's teleconference and hopefully satisfy the employer definition to try and obtain H-1B approvals, even for our H-1 consulting companies, because many of us, our clients, uh, are in fact consulting companies and have to deal with a lot of consulting company issues. So, Alyssa... What do you believe are the changes in the um, focus that have been set up in this January 8th Newfeld memo? 
Thank you, Sheila. Previously, USCIS was more focused on verifying the existence of a bona fide specialty occupation by getting documentation from petitioners and clients who directly received and worked with the H-1B employees on a daily basis. What we are seeing now with this memo is a shift in focus and more focus on the employer-employee relationship. Murthy Law Firm previously addressed the issue of documenting the bona fide specialty occupation with our existing company clients and have been filing H-1B petitions with additional documentation. This additional documentation, again, evidenced the existence of a bona fide specialty occupation by obtaining documents from the end client. We have customized strategies for each case depending on the business relationship the petitioners have with their end clients. As a result of this customization, Murthy Law Firm has had a tremendous amount of success in obtaining approvals. Our approval rates are in the high 90th percentile. However, now USCIS is seeking to verify the petitioner as a U.S. employer for purposes specifically of filing an H-1B petition. As such, they will be determining if there is a valid employer-employee relationship based on this common law definition, Sheila, which you previously mentioned. Okay. Um, thank you, Alyssa. Now, Korzad, uh, I know that the memo lists various examples of an employer-employee arrangement that may or may not be sufficient in establishing a valid employer-employee relationship. There are three specific items or examples where the USCI states that there is no such employer-employee relationship. Can you just outline what those are? And Because then we'll know right off the bat how to deal with that. I'd be happy to, Sheila, and thanks for having me here today. Um, the three specific examples uh, where, where the USCIS states in their memo that there is no employer-employee relationship is, one, self-employed beneficiaries. Uh, the USCIS takes the position that where one is their own boss uh, the, and there's no outside entity which is exercising control over the beneficiary's work, uh, the, there is no valid employer-employee relationship. Uh, a second um, situation is uh, where an individual is going to be acting as an independent contractor, uh, very similar to self-employed beneficiaries, where the USCIS um, sees that, well, there is no petitioner that's claiming the employee for tax purposes, there's no control over the work, and there is no performance review because the individual who's doing the work is acting as an uh, independent contractor. And that's these two have been common previously as well in most of their decisions. Absolutely. And Sheila, you know, though this is outside the scope of what we're talking about over here, uh, a memo, as you've said many times before, is not necessarily black letter law or have the force of law. And uh, litigation may be the only, um, only uh, remedy to, uh, to decide these questions once and for all uh, reliably. But in, in, in the, in the, with the existence of the memo, this is what the memo seems to be uh, pointing us towards. And then the final type of uh, situation where the USCIS questions whether a employer-employee relationship could exist is the so-called job shop arrangement, or what's what's better referred to as uh, the the situation where an employee is placed at a worksite uh, of a third party. Uh, characteristics of these. Um, of these types of uh, situations are ones where there are petitioner contracts with outside companies to fill staffing needs for staff augmentation. 
Um, the positions are filled on an as-needed basis rather than specifically being outlined in a contract between the petitioner and the third party. Uh, the employee typically reports to a third-party manager to the exclusion of, a, um, to, of an account uh, manager at their own um, petitioner site. Um, employee does not get work assignments necessarily from the petitioner, but in fact gets them directly from the third party where they're placed. Uh, the petitioner does not control how the beneficiary uh, completes their daily tasks in this type of situation. No proprietary information from the petitioner is used in the daily accomplishment of the job duties in this sort of example. Uh, the end product of the employee's work is not related to the petitioner's business at all. Um, and uh, reviews uh, and, uh, and employment, uh, employment uh, uh, augmentation with, with respect to wage and salary is uh, controlled by uh, the third party in such a situation. According to the USCIS, there is no valid employer-employee when one or more or some of these uh, factors are taken and looked at in a totality of the circumstances. Exactly. And I guess to the extent that if you really read between the lines, they're obviously not our attorneys, the USCIS. They're obviously on the other side, if you will. But they're telling us the solutions for the problem, which we're again going to touch upon later. But basically they're saying since all of these are considered job shop arrangements, these nine factors that Korzad just outlined, basically if you can overcome and show that in each of these you satisfy the requirements, for example, do the reviews in-house, for example, you know, you, you, you have proprietary information that you work with, you have right of control, exercise control, we found this magic solution, the magic key to obtaining those H approvals, which will, as I said, again, analyze and dissect a little bit further on how we can truly work together to um, ensure more approvals, improve that 90% approval rating of the Murthy Law Firm. Okay, Alyssa, so what exactly now is the USCIS looking for? Thank you, Sheila. Uh, USCIS, like you said, is looking for the right to control. So they want to see you, the employer, describe to USCIS and show them how you, how you guide your employee on a daily basis. How do you oversee their work? How do you help them accomplish their goals? Essentially, when, where, and how does your employee perform their job, and how do you control this? Now, there is a difference, though, between right to control and actual control, and the key here is right. So we don't need to necessarily show that the employer is actually controlling the benef their employee, but rather that you have the option to, that you are able to exercise this control over every single daily function performed by the employee to meet your goals as an employer. So USCIS will evaluate different evidence they w to, in order to make this determination to make sure that you, the employer, are actually having this level of control. And they discuss many factors that they consider to make the determination. However, these factors, factors will be weighed as a totality of circumstances. Not one of them will be determinative. So we can work with you to go over your specific case and make a determination as to which factors together will, will make a, a, a sufficient case. Um, it is important to know that it is clear that merely hiring, firing, paying, and providing benefits is not sufficient. Again, we must show that you, the employer, has the right to control and that this control will exist throughout the, the duration of the beneficiary's employment term. Okay, so the, the, the focus that we've talked about is really that it is no longer sufficient. Previously, the focus was um, showing, you know, the specialty occupation, uh, which was a big deal, and a little bit on the employer issues. Now the employer-employee seems to be the main focus, um, and that they're saying the hiring, firing, paying, and providing benefits 
will no longer be sufficient. And that's somewhat interesting because for IRS purposes, they certainly look at it as a U.S. employer. And under all other statutes, they're saying, sure, give me your FICA taxes, give me this, give me that. And now suddenly, for this purpose, we're saying, no, no, you're not a U.S. employer, so we're not going to allow you to sponsor. It's a very interesting situation, which is why we keep coming back to Maybe the and maybe at the end we'll touch up a little bit about a potential maybe a class action mass action lawsuit where we can have possible challenge to something like this. Okay, so let's analyze a little bit further the eleven factors that are involved here. Corzad, uh, the first factor that they touch upon is does the petitioner supervise the beneficiary and is such supervision off-site or on-site implying I'm presuming that on-site is given a lot greater weight, but then with consulting company context, obviously we can't have it on-site because it is an incline. So can you explain that just briefly? Um, as with anything, uh, documentary evidence is what's going to uh, give us the, the key to, uh, to um, convincingly satisfying the USCIS's concern with this factor. Um, documents such as employment contracts, offer letters, employee handbooks, any kind of document that really sets forth what the rights and responsibilities are of the employer for the uh, duties that the employee is going to be accomplishing are going to be very, very valuable. Uh, you know, cer certain times adjudicators can be visual people. An organizational chart which shows the hierarchy of how an individual petitioner deals with a client for that uh, for that project or contract would be very, very valuable. That shows how the uh, the uh, beneficiary reports to uh, individuals who are employed by the petitioner for the day-to-day -day work that is being completed at the client project. Wonderful, wonderful. So do we plan then to have, like, list the 11 factors as a separate maybe portion in our petition or letter company letter, maybe address it saying clearly meets employer-employee relationship and then outline as many of the factors as we can? Absolutely, absolutely. There's strength in numbers, and uh, the, the memo has, uh, has stated very, very clearly that no one of these factors is going to be determinative, and, they, and the and U.S. Exactly. So the totality of circumstances then will, you know, numbers are helpful, but in the end it could be three very strong points, but it's obviously better if you can have eight strong points or all 11, you know, issues being touched upon. Okay, moving on then, Alyssa. If the supervision is offsite, how does the employer or petitioner maintain the supervision? For example, is it weekly calls, reporting back to the main office routinely, site visits by the employer petitioner? Right, this is going to be very important. And it is, again, a documentation issue where the employer is going to have to show that however they do communicate with their employee, that they are communicating and they are understanding what the person is doing on a daily basis, that they're involved in their daily work product. We can provide evidence in forms of worksheets which indicate the work being completed. We can also provide phone logs. We can provide emails or documentation such as contracts, employee handbooks, which outline the methods that the employer takes to stay uh, in, t in touch with their employee and involved with what they're doing. This is all supposed to document how, how the employer is involved in the, in the work assignment. And again, we can also, if the employee is off-site, the petitioner can also provide documentation of arrangements that they have to visit the employee's work site on a regular basis. 
And I know some consulting companies are going to say, God, this is so difficult for us to do. It's impossible. We have, you know, hundreds and hundreds of employees all across the country. But I know there's also a huge concern in the consulting company industry in general after this uh, release of this memo, the publication of this memo, uh, that, that our business, if you will, is pretty much going to dry up and, you know, go away. Uh, it might be a valuable investment in having another employee or two coordinate and act as the employer point of contact. Yes, uh, it is uh, you know, going to eat into some of those profits, but sometimes you have to spend money to earn money. And as business owners and an entrepreneur myself, I can completely relate to wanting to be careful with your costs, but definitely uh, learn that you need to invest invaluable employment you know, contacts, whether it's like the technical recruiter position, an ongoing person, somebody that's actually monitoring your staff rather than sort of just leaving them and then taking a cut from the payroll, uh, almost like you will have no re relationship with this uh, H-1B employee, which is going to be the death knell or the kiss of death uh, for the H-1B petition filing approval and or extension, even the extension approval as we're seeing. Okay, Korzad. The third factor, does the petitioner have the right to control the work of the beneficiary on a day-to-day -day basis if such control is required, and how can that be shown? Well, Sheila, in, in a traditional employer-employee relationship, and I'm, now I'm talking not so much from the third-party context, this is established you know, because there's a direct relationship between the employer and the employee. In the, um, in the model that we're talking about here, where a petitioner is going to be placing their employee at a third-party uh, site, that control is a little bit more attenuated. And in the consulting company context, it's even more attenuated. And by attenuated, I mean drawn out a little bit more remote. Mm -hmm. Yeah, is because of the fact that there are other parties involved in, in many, many, many of these uh, client uh, business partner type contracts, also known as mid-vendors. Um, what's, what's necessary and what would be very valuable to satisfy this question of the USCIS is to document uh, very, very clearly that no matter what the business arrangement is with the different business partners, at each step, and this can be shown with contracts, letters from end clients, letters from mid-vendors, uh, purchase orders and statements of work, that the ultimate uh, control or right to control and take that particular employee off a project rests with the petitioner themselves. And which usually is the case. I don't, just don't think the focus is, to, you know, to some extent, rather than sort of creating an alarm and panic, some of this is actually there. It's just that we've never focused in trying to show it as strongly, but this memo has sort of almost made it mandatory now to, to focus and show that right of control, which I know for the last several months we've been trying to, to submit these letters, and many of you have been seeing that there have been more RFEs and denials on this issue anyway, and they took almost two years to release this memo, which they've been promising to release any minute for the last two years. Okay, so moving on to the next point. Um, how can it help for the employer or the petitioner to provide the tools or instrumentalities needed for the beneficiary to perform duties? Because when you think of tools or instrumentalities, you're generally thinking a manufacturing type of business, but most of our clients are consulting companies and you know, the technology uh, workers, how, what kind of equipment or, you know, supplies should they be able to show? Right, well, these are tools and instrumentalities that may otherwise be, you know, assumed to be provided if you're working on-site at your employer's location. But now, because the employee is more remote at an additional location, we can show by the employer providing Blackberries, cell phones, 
perhaps uh, manuals or guidebooks on how to perform their duties, we can show that the petitioner is actively involved in directing and controlling this, this employee's work on a daily basis because these are items that the employee utilizes and needs to fulfill their duties. Okay. And I know in general, even most consulting companies have said the right to hire, pay, and the ability to fire the beneficiary generally vests with them, except that firing depends, I guess, on the consulting company, the, you know, the end If the end project client. dries up exactly, or something Exactly, that, right. exactly. So, so how, can, how can the employer try to demonstrate that, Korzat? Put it out there. Uh, specify it very, very clearly in the employer handbook, in the uh, offer letter, in the employment contract. Potentially even um, have it further specified with uh, contemporaneous documentation from business partners like mid vendors and end clients. Um, obviously, tax documents like W-2s, pay stubs, um, d d d uh, documentation which uh, shows review, promotion, demotion. Uh, and uh, in conjunction with uh, employee handbooks that specify these uh, policies would be very, very, very valuable. Okay. And for those who are listening saying, oh, my God, you know, we're going to have to start a handbook from scratch and this is going to take months and years. How do you generate it overnight? Believe me, you all are in technology and you know there are some fabulous sample handbooks out there on the Internet, um, either for free or for very, very low cost through various, uh, you know, different agencies. A lot of this, thanks to technology, thanks to the whole Internet, these are available very inexpensively, very quickly, uh, and they can be modified with very minor changes rather quickly. I don't know that you as the business owner or employer wants to do everything by yourself or as the HR manager, but you certainly want to, you know, monitor it to some extent because you are ultimately responsible for the growth and success or the, the, the continued viability of your own business. Uh, okay, uh, Alyssa, um, what about evaluations? Uh, of the work product of the beneficiary. How can that help, and is that something you would recommend? Sheila, I, I definitely recommend this. This is going to be great to show that the petitioner is involved in the employee's work, is aware of what they're doing, and is in constant touch and monitoring their, their progress. What the employer can do, if not already, is establish and document their routine evaluation process. If it is established already but not documented, memorialize it. The you know performance evaluation sheets will be able to to provide evidence that that work is being monitored that if there's identified weaknesses or strengths that the employer is aware of their of, of the employee's work. Uh, this can also be indicated in contracts or offer letters. The employer can can describe their policy for evaluations in the handbook as well. And by virtue of these evaluations, the employer can make raises or can possible demotions or can evaluate how they want their employee to, to proceed with their company. Okay. So so even if they're the, the um, individual H-1B employees working at a um, mid-vendor and client side, most likely, um, have the end client person provide feedback uh, to some extent and your own understanding and then share that in a formal evaluation process rather than treating this H-1B employee more like a semi-independent contractor or what they use the word consultant? Or they can monitor the evaluation by talking both to the end client and directly reviewing the employee's work product. Having those direct uh, conference calls or emails where, where you have someone in your company reviewing the work product and assessing, assessing your employee's success. Okay. Okay. And uh, how about the issue of the employer claiming the beneficiary for tax purposes as an employee? Claiming an employee for tax purposes um, is a is a basic 
uh, thing that uh, employers do. And um, it's, it's something that can show that employer-employee relationship very, very clearly because most employers are not going to take on liability by tax liability as well as other liability by naming an employee that's not their employee in their tax records. Uh, tax records can show this very convincingly, both state and federally quarterly reports that, uh, that mention the beneficiary specifically. Uh, additionally, uh, payroll records can help as well. Many uh, outside agencies that do uh, payroll, such as ADP and Paychex, give very detailed reports about uh, the wages that are paid to an employee and what amounts are taken out for taxes. Okay. So, again, the, see, when you kind of panic a little bit, remember, we're, you're probably already doing many of these um, in, take, in terms of taking a tax break, showing them as an employee, showing their wages as a deduction. Uh, what about the employee benefits? I know many don't offer a whole bunch, but whatever you offer is, is good. And, and I think to the extent that you can give some, it clearly establishes again. So what kind of employee benefits would you um, touch upon, Alyssa? Right. Again, these are probably benefits which a lot of employers already provide, uh, medical, uh, maybe dental if there's short or long-term leave, any sort of retirement plan, 401k, anything like this can also strengthen the, the argument that this is a valid employer-employee relationship. Uh, again, if you have an employee who's traveling, reimbursement of expenses, uh, cell phones, hotels, things of that nature. Okay, fantastic, because then that makes it less of an independent contractor slash exactly. consultant and more of an employer-employee relationship. And keep in mind, these are the 11 factors that the USCIS has stated clearly in unambiguous terms will clearly help them make the determination and approve the case um, if they feel that majority totality of the circumstances are met. Korzad, what about proprietary information? Because that's something that I think people have but aren't very clear on what it means, you know, and what is this whole issue of proprietary information of the petitioner? Uh, because a lot of companies say, well, I don't really have anything proprietary. The person's got the education. I'm just going to put them on the end client side. Sure, Sheila. I mean, you know, success in the marketplace comes from differentiation. And uh, our clients are very, very, very successful. Our corporate clients especially are very, very successful business people who have built their businesses by, by being able to advise their business partners what differentiates them from their, uh, from other individuals and other competitors. And sometimes that differentiation can be the proprietary uh, information or product that the petitioner is offering to its clients. That doesn't have to be a, a tangible product necessarily. It can be a, a new application on how uh, a particular um, a computer program is applied for a particular project. Uh, patented, obviously, patented products, licensed products, trademark products, uh, those are primary and would, would uh, convincingly uh, give the USCIS a flavor uh, to, um, to satisfy this prong. But also marketing materials, those can help. Company-specific project protocols, how to execute a project uh, which is shown by procedures and manuals and guides, project plans and progress sheets, um, just basically those objectives and how, uh, how the petitioner uh, through the beneficiary can accomplish those, uh, those um, objectives in a, in a more special way uh, can be uh, used to show the proprietary information. Uh, also, whether the beneficiary is trained in a special product or a, pro a special protocol that can be shown with training certificates, training schedules, proof of having paid for the training. Okay. Again, I'm not sure if this is simple, the one about the beneficiary producing an end product that is directly linked 
to the petitioner's line of business, but how can the beneficiary show that in the consulting company context, Alyssa? In the consulting company context, you know, the employer will be engaged, you know, specifically in IT consulting and software-related industry. And if we consider this business model, there are employees who are engaged in in software development or engineering-related activities will be considered in line with that employer's business. Uh, and it is a little complicated. It's not a very straightforward uh, example here. I think one way to contrast it is if you had a general uh, staffing firm who had all kinds of temporary staff from accounting to reception to legal, in which case this is a general agency and these individuals who they're placing on projects are, are not necessarily in a specific line of business that's, that is the employer's business. So even in this, we can show, because most of our consulting company clients and other companies uh, focus in their technology area or what have you in providing the necessary skilled professional workers. Right. Especially with certain IT consulting companies that specialize in a certain industry or in a certain IT consulting speciality will be able to show that their employees are, are trained in providing services or producing products within that specific area of expertise. Okay, very good. And we are actually at the last point, the 11th factor, um, as mentioned by um, the Neufeld memo, uh, is the petitioner's ability to control the manner and means in which the work product of the beneficiary is accomplished, and how can this be done, Corzal? Highlight the access that the employer has to the employee even while they're on the project at the end client's site. Um, show if they work in the same office, whether they, um, whether they exchange correspondence regarding the uh, project, uh, whether the uh, account manager visits the employee at the site and uh, reviews their work from that location. Uh, sometimes you want to show how the end client and the beneficiary uh, understand the manner and means of control. Uh, whether this has been pre-negotiated via an employment contract or via uh, letters and uh, documents between the uh, mid-vendors and the end clients. Just highlighting the access and demonstrating it would go a far way to uh, satisfy the USCIS. Okay. Um, again, I don't know. I mean, it seems obviously much more difficult, I think, for consulting companies to actually show up at places of work, especially if you've got hundreds of consulting companies and very few, you know, and it's one business owner with one or two staff people, maybe even correspondence by email, by phone calls, log records, which you can submit to USCIS shows that control and the ability to control the manner and means because that's more realistic rather than showing up in you know, locations all across the United States and, and client sites. But again, look at the criteria, look at the factors, and see how best you can make it. If it's not 100% there, even if you're 80% of each of those points, we can submit that as meeting the 11 criteria. The, the standard of proof in visa petitions continues to be a preponderance of the evidence, 50 plus 1. So if the totality of the circumstances makes it, uh, is presented to the USCIS where it shows that it's more likely than not that a particular situation is what we say it is, which is a bona fide um, job, uh, especially, especially occupation, uh, and the employer controls, or has the right to control, rather, the employee in the uh, accomplishment of the job duties, 
you know, it, it, we, petitioners should continue to be successful. Exactly. And I think it's a very important point that Korzad mentioned that I know sometimes when I go, go over this with sort of a fundamental situation, I know many of you are sophisticated employers, um, but I also realize you don't have in-house general counsel, you don't work routinely with uh, lawyers uh, as a general rule. Many of you try to file, you know, but uh, clearly, many, uh, certainly in this call, every single one of you is smart to hire the best law firm, the best immigration law firm in the country to work with you. Uh, but the point is that in a criminal case, it's beyond a reasonable doubt that the government has to prove that the person is guilty, and only then you can charge the person of the crime. And the second, which is a quasi-criminal, is a clear and convincing evidence which is a much higher standard, maybe 75, 80%. In the other one, it's almost like 9,900%, 75. But the third, which is in almost every civil case, the employer only is required to show by a preponderance of the evidence, which is more likely than not, which, as Korzad just pointed out, 51%. So sometimes the government comes back, and we've seen USCIS issue RFEs and you know, even denials saying, you didn't prove clearly and convincingly to us and we've actually challenged saying, that is not the legal standard, guys. You got it wrong. That is the incorrect legal standard. You cannot require my client to show by clear and convincing standard. We only have to show it more likely than not that this would have been approved or this case should be we've established the employer-employee relationship. So don't let the government scare us into something that we know is in, improper or incorrect application of the law because, remember, a lot of the examiners are not lawyers, do not ap appreciate and understand the subtleties, but at the end of the day, we are still a democracy, we're still a free country, and we still have to satisfy the legal criteria to establish the legal basis, uh, you know, which, uh, you know, we, we certainly can, um, you know, again, as I said, we'll just sort of conclude at the end with, uh, briefly with the employer-employee sort of the, the potential lawsuit. But just to wrap up, so what kind of list of documents would we show for initial petitions, Alyssa, and then for extensions, Korzad, because I know we want to be mindful of the 40-45 minute time frame. Right. Well, USCIS has given us different criteria if it's a new petition, an initial petition, or, or a continuation. With initial petitions, you're not going to have a history of relationship. You're not going to have W-2s with that employee. You're not going to have progress reports. So it's important to show moving forward in establishing this new employer-employee relationship any of this documentation that we've already discussed. Handbooks, offer letters, contracts, any materials that you're going to provide to your employee, again, any and all of these 11 standards that we've discussed is going to be important to establish moving forward that there is employer-employee relationship that's being established. Okay. And for extensions, Sheila, um, you know, to be eligible for an extension in the United States, an individual must show that they've been maintaining status and there's been no material change to the petition. Um, showing maintenance of status for H-1B non-immigrants is typically shown by showing pay, pay records, pay stubs most often, but if the USCIS asks for additional information regarding maintenance of status, uh, payroll records, performance reviews, timesheets can also uh, satisfy those requirements. Um, we have a complete list of documentation that we request for an extension of stay without material change in our required documents list, and we have uh, added to it uh, recently as well. So our, you know, our, our corporate clients have the, are armed with the most uh, up-to-date requests for um, documentation that can of be the requested suggested documents, for this. and it's yeah. on the unique landing page yeah. for you that's provided to your company uh, or your business. 
Um, and it really looks like previously extensions, approval of extensions was so much easier. Now it appears that actually extensions in a way are probably even more difficult than initial petitions because now you have to truly meet the employer-employee relationship and they're asking for proof of that for the last one year or three years since the employee joined uh, and became an H-1B employee of your consulting company or business or insurance company, whatever business that the employer is in. So to try and kind of wrap up our recommendations, you know, as we've previously emphasized here, we must secure a bona fide H-1B position um, uh, before actually filing the petition. The, the document the employer's right of control of the employees with the factors that we just, that both Korzad and Alyssa just outlined in, in considerable detail of the kinds of evidence and documentary proof. Um, it may require modifying some of the business practices and relationships with end clients and mid-vendors, and to the extent that many of the uh, end clients truly have established a valuable, helpful working relationship with many of your H-1B employees uh, or consultants, it really will make a difference in nurturing those relationships and continuing and asking them for their help and cooperation in obtaining some of the documents and letters and you know, working with them towards the reviews, whether it's quarterly review, biannual reviews, or annual reviews for your employees so that you can do some kind of joint where you get feedback but you're actually the person giving it to determine raises and continued employment, et cetera, as Alyssa had earlier pointed out. Uh, the mid-vendor and end client letters, um, where they all acknowledge the H-1B employer or petitioner's right to control, which can be documented in the agreement and may, may be part of the agreement that the employer will retain complete control over the employee in, this, in the following respects, and then outline as many of these factors and the 11 criteria in your standard employer-employee-vendor contract consulting company agreement to show that, yes, we do meet and satisfy these new standards and tests. And again, they didn't talk about the size and the font. Obviously, it can't be illegible font, but you want to make it as part of your standard routine practice. And then, unfortunately, we have to be prepared, as we've been seeing for the last year or two, for the Fraud Detection and National Security, or FDNS, uh, to, to show up and have site visits of your premises, of the end client sites, of the company sites. They are looking very carefully at LCA work locations and collecting information to verify what's already mentioned on the LCA uh, and the approved H-1 petition. And if it reveals that there's either the employer-employee relationship is not maintained, the employee is not working at that work site, obviously a notice of intent to revoke or a denial notice will be issued. Um, so we cannot emphasize you know, how important it is to at least uh, try to satisfy all of these criteria. And we at the Murthy Law Firm, or Muthi Law Firm as I know many of you call us, are certainly taking a very proactive uh, stance and step in trying to prepare the absolute strongest H-1B petition in light of this current changed adjudication focus and trends that we're seeing. Uh, we would love to continue to file and obtain H-1 approvals um, and continue with getting more than the 90% plus approval rating that we continue to hope to actually improve. Ideally, I always say 100% is what we really want to, to attempt for, um, but there will be some cases that are weak, and then we can work together in, in trying to overcome uh, many of those issues. And something I know I'd like to clearly mention, and I don't know how many of you, but though we would probably give preference first to our own existing company clients, is we've had some preliminary interest with people contacting us saying, 
Can we challenge the government? Can we sue the government? You know, why are they relying on 200, 300-year-old common law case law when we have federal statutes? And we have done some preliminary extensive research on this issue, and the research seems to reveal that there are federal statutes, which means black-letter law, which the USCIS has used in defining employer and employee, which is quite different and not as um, you know, tenuous or vague as what's under common law and under case law, but very specific, clear-cut um, d- definitions of employer and employee um, under diff- specific federal statutes that we have found, as I said, used in the immigration context previously under the Immigration Reform Control Act, uh, which even most consulting companies will clearly meet those standards. And uh, maybe we do need to challenge the government uh, to make them realize that they can't just introduce a wholly new set of rules and pretend to just say this is the same law as before because the fact is uh, the government cannot introduce new interpretation, new standard, new focus, new standards, if you will, um, by claiming that this is just a regurgitation of the earlier um, standards that they have used when we see that it is, in fact, been something that they've changed, something that they've been using for the last, you know, at least 10 or 15 years, even if it's for the last few months that they have now, the fact that they've tried to crystallize and create new law in a memorandum is certainly disturbing because by federal law, it is still a democracy. They have to follow rules, and the Administrative Procedures Act requires that the government issue comments and get publication and get comments from the affected public, which none of that has happened here. So if some of you continue to be interested, if many of you are interested, obviously the costs will substantially reduce, but we're expecting at least maybe 20 to 40 companies, hopefully, to be willing to join in in the lawsuit to challenge the government. And that way you don't stick out uh, by yourselves. Many of you join in together, and we would be honored and delighted to work with you to challenge the government so that we can uh, bring sense into the system and continue to get H-1 approvals and have them maybe revise their very narrow approach to the employer-employee relationship. As always, on behalf of the entire staff and team of the Murthy Law Firm, our H-1B department, and the two other attorneys here with me today, Alyssa and Korsad, uh, we look forward to continuing to obtain H-1 approvals with you, continuing to address it, and until we challenge and file that lawsuit, trying to comply as much as we can with the terms of this memo as we have tried to outline and provide you many valuable tips and suggestions. Thank you very much. Uh, Onward we go. Ahoy. Thanks a million. We look forward to continued approvals. Have a great day.